So as we continue our journey together through the life and the message of the prophet Jeremiah, we've come to this text in Jeremiah 18 that speaks to us through an image, an analogy, the image of a potter at the wheel. So let me tell you about a friend of mine who knows a little something about this. Several years ago, um, there was a family that was part of our congregation here at CCV. Some of you may still remember them if you've been around uh, for a good length of time. They were the Maynard family, and they are still uh, dear friends of ours to this day, uh, though they moved uh, to Virginia several years ago. In fact, we're headed out to see them in a few weeks because one of their daughters, Emily, is getting married. Uh, so um, they've been good friends of ours uh, since the time that they were here as part of our congregation. And uh, what I appreciate about Scott uh, Maynard, the, the man, the husband and father of the family in particular, is that Scott is an artist. And there are really two forms and expressions of art uh, that I saw him practice and had the opportunity to appreciate. The first one was that uh, he would come on Sunday mornings as he listened to me preach, and he would keep a journal with him. And get this, every Sunday as he listened to my messages, he would not take notes in the journal, he would sketch drawings. And so each week, for each page in the journal, there was a drawing that represented what he heard God speaking to him through that message. And it was beautiful. It was so fun. Every once in a while, he'd show me the journal, give me a chance to flip through the pages, and he, he told me you know, that from time to time, he would do that himself, and it would jog his memory. Just to look at a picture that he'd drawn would remind him of what the Lord had spoken through that particular message. But the second form of art that Scott was routinely committed to and devoted to was pottery. In fact, it was from Scott that I first learned the term of throwing a pot. Throwing a pot. If you're not familiar with pottery and the practice of um, what potters do, this phrase may seem odd to you. You might be thinking, well, what do you mean throw a pot? Like, you know, maybe you have an image in your mind, you know, Scott gets angry. Scott goes to the kitchen cupboard. Scott pulls out a kitchen pan and throws it at the person he's angry with. No, that's not throwing a pot. If you have any understanding or awareness of pottery, you'll know that throwing a pot or a bowl or a cup or a plate is what the potter does at their wheel. It's called throwing. I don't know why. I'm not sure who came up with the term, but that's what it is, throwing a pot. So I learned about throwing pots and plates and cups and bowls from Scott. In fact, Scott left us a little gift when they moved to Virginia, and perhaps a few of you have noticed, but probably not many, there's a back hallway that is kind of the secret passage to my office, and up on a shelf by the window there outside the prayer room, there are some handmade pots that were thrown by Scott Maynard. In fact, here's one of them. This pot sits on that windowsill just outside our prayer room. And every time I walk down that hall and I see these pots, I'm reminded of Scott, my relationship with him, my love for him and for his family. And I'm reminded of the potter and the clay, the relationship between them, and the power of this image 
that we're going to talk about this morning. So let's think about this image. In fact, I'll pass this around and you can appreciate it a little bit, touch it and feel it and think about it as I share. Let's think about this image. What can we learn from Jeremiah's prophetic reference to how a potter at his wheel illustrates the relationship between God and his people? The first and the most basic insight that comes to mind for me is this. I want you to understand that God is a master artist who is actively shaping human lives and, at the broader level, human history for his good purposes. God is a master artist. I don't know if you've thought of him that way. And if you're, you know, kind of a left-brain thinker, more rational and less artistic or creative in your thinking, you probably find this a foreign thought. But, but God has plenty of right brain and left brain. And in, uh, in those moments when he so desires, he can be incredibly creative and artistic. So there's some power in considering that about the nature of God, the character of God. This account from Jeremiah's experience as a prophet is one of many where God shows him something and then speaks to Jeremiah through this image that he's seen. And we've seen several examples of this down through the the first 18 chapters. It's a common practice, really, in the prophetic that God would use something as a symbol or an analogy and that he would speak to us about his relationship with us through something else that's analogous. It's a simple but powerful way for God to speak to people through something that they can relate to, something that they can see with their eyes or touch with their hands. So in this case, Jeremiah's prophetic word begins, as we see in verse 2, with a simple instruction from the Lord. And I can imagine him, you know, sitting at home one day praying and the thought comes to him, I, I, I doubt that it was a, a verbal, you know, audible word. The thought comes to him from the Spirit, and he discerns it's the Lord, the voice of the Lord. And the thought is this, Jeremiah 18, verse 2. Go down to the potter's house, and there I will give you my message. Go to the house, go to the potter's house, and there I will give you my message. So even before we get to the specifics of what Jeremiah saw when he went to the potter's house, I think this is instructive. There's something here that we can learn from because the practice of hearing God speak often begins with paying close attention to the things that he wants to show you in the world. God doesn't just you know, speak to us through an audible voice or through an angelic messenger or through some otherworldly experience, oftentimes God speaks through the very plain things that we see and experience in everyday life. He's eager to speak to us, to show us things that will help us understand who he is and how he wants to relate to us. So sometimes it can be as simple as inviting God to speak to you and then noticing what he wants to show you from the everyday routines of your life. Now, make no mistake about it. In Jeremiah's day, the practice of throwing a pot 
or a plate or a bowl or a cup was common. It's not so common for us anymore, right? We have manufacturers who mass produce these things and you know we need a new pot or a new bowl or a new plate we go down to walmart and we pick one out or whatever and uh we have no idea how those things were made few of us have ever watched a potter at his wheel producing something like this it's not as common as it used to be now it's really just a form of art right but in jeremiah's day this was everyday life every town and village had a potter because every family needed plates and bowls and cups. And there were no Walmarts, right? There's nowhere to go to buy these things. You would go to the potter's house when you needed a new bowl or a new plate. So Jeremiah goes. And when he gets there, he understands that the Lord wants him to watch closely so that he can understand something of significance about what the Lord wants to say through what he sees happening at the potter's house. So the story goes on then in verses 3 through 6, Jeremiah 18. So I went down to the potter's house, and I saw him working at the wheel. But the pot he was shaping from the clay was marred in his hands. So the potter formed it into another pot, shaping it as seemed best to him. Then the word of the Lord came to me. He said, Can I not do with you, Israel, As this potter does, declares the Lord, like clay in the hand of the potter, so are you in my hand, Israel. So, friends, here's where the the insight begins for us as we think about this image, this analogy, right? Take a step into the potter's house with Jeremiah and imagine in your mind's eyes what you see there. Or if it helps, you can just look at the picture behind me to get an idea of what you might see. In essence, there were three basic elements at work that Jeremiah witnessed. And each one of them are representative of something else. They're symbolic of something else. First, of course, he he sees the potter. The potter at work at his wheel. And the potter, of course, represents God, the artist. God, who is a master artist at work. In fact, if you take nothing else away from this message, you could just meditate, probably for a good long time, on the reality that God is truly a master artist who loves to create beautiful things. If you understand that about the heart of God and the character of God and the power of God, then you've gone a long way toward understanding who God is. That's the kind of thought that you could get lost in for a while, I think. But let's add to that a secondary thought, right? Jeremiah sees the potter at work, and what's he working with? Clay. Clay. So here's the second thought, right? And when you think about this, your mind really starts to spin with the possibilities. What's the artist doing? He's shaping the clay according to his vision for what it should become. So Jeremiah saw the clay in the potter's hands, and he understood from what he saw and from the presence of the Lord speaking to him in that moment, he understood that the clay represented the life of individuals in the hand of God and of nations in the hand of God. 
And I think that's amazing, that it's really both and, not either or, right? What Jeremiah understands is that each individual person is like clay in the hands of God, and every nation on the face of the earth, and particularly Israel or Judah, is like clay in the potter's hands. So here I'm reminded of a passage from Ephesians 2. Um, It's been a good long time since I've preached on this and touched on it, but I'll always remember this because it came to me as such a, a revelation when I first understood the word that's used to describe God's, uh, God's relationship to us in these verses. Ephesians 2, 8, and 10, uh, 8 through 10, Paul says this. He says, it's by grace you've been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast, for we are God's handiwork. We are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Did you know that the word Paul uses there, the word handiwork in verse 10, could just as well be translated work of art. We are God's work of art, each one of us. And collectively, this church is God's work of art. This city is God's work of art. This nation that we live in, the United States of America, is God's work of art. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works. So think about that. Think about this relationship between the potter and the clay. Think about what it means to be subject to the creativity of a master artist. Think of what it means to be shaped in God's hands. And then, finally, Jeremiah saw one other thing that's really important to this He saw the potter's wheel, the tool which the potter used to give shape to the clay, along with his hands, of course. And this is perhaps the hardest part of the analogy for us to understand, the most difficult and obscure of the three parts in this analogy. But in short, I believe the wheel represents time and circumstance. Time and circumstance for the process of how human lives and human history are shaped by God is on the wheel of time and circumstance. So in short, the idea here is that God uses circumstances over time in our lives to bring us into the center of what he wants to do to keep us centered so that he can shape our lives according to his pleasure and purposes. There's a great quote I came across in my studies this week on this theme from a blogger and commentator named Lambert Dolphin. Uh, I won't bother you with credentials of who he is or any of that. I just love the way that he captured the beauty of this image. He said, The theme of the potter and the clay in the Bible gives us one of the most beautiful, impressive, and awe-inspiring pictures of the sovereignty of God over both men and history. And it shows us vividly his constant loving artist's hands at work in all of our affairs. Isn't that beautiful? In fact, his post on this subject... uh, made reference to Genesis 2, verse 7, and I thought this was really insightful. He 
connected Genesis 2-7 with Jeremiah 18 because there's one key word that's used in both places. It's the verb that's used to describe the work of God. Genesis 2-7 says, Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. That word formed in the Hebrew is the word yatsar. Yatsar. Formed. This verb literally means to mold something as a potter molds clay. So all the way back to the very beginning of God's word, this image of God giving shape and form to the lives of human beings is present in Scripture. From the very beginning, it's descriptive of the relationship that we have with our Creator. So this reference from Genesis 2 serves to remind us then that from the very beginning of human history, God has been hands-on, hands-on, not hands-off, hands-on in his involvement with humanity. He's an artist devoted to his craft, devoted to making something beautiful of our human existence and of human history. So behind then all this biblical and prophetic symbol of the potter and the clay, there's this fundamental reality, fundamental understanding of the way things are. And it's really important that we grab hold of this and that we agree with it. God is the great potter, the sovereign over creation, and we are his creation. We are his work of art. What this means in the grand scheme of life is that, that we should always recognize and remember that God is in control and that he has the right to do with us as he sees fit and we have to trust his good purposes. Now, with those sort of three basic elements of this analogy in mind, let me encourage you now to think a little bit deeper about how the clay gets shaped. Have you ever considered this, thought about it deeply and carefully? What I want you to see next is that like the potter, God shapes the lives of individuals and nations in whatever way seems best to him by applying pressure, the pressure of his hand against the clay. That's how a potter throws a pot. He gets his hands on the clay and he begins to spin the wheel. In the olden days, they would do it manually with a foot pedal. Nowadays, it's all automated. and You can buy a you know, wheel that just spins automatically without having to use your foot. But in either case, the wheel begins to spin, the clay begins to spin as it's centered on the wheel, and the potter gives shape to the clay by pressing it with his hands, pressuring it in different ways so that it becomes what he wants it to become. So listen again to Jeremiah 18. Three and four, how does Jeremiah describe what he sees? I went down to the potter's house and I saw him working at the wheel, but the pot he was shaping from the clay was marred in his hands. Oops, this one didn't turn out quite the way I wanted it to. 
So what happens? So the potter formed it into another pot. He reshaped it. He redirected it. It wasn't working quite the way that he wanted it to. That particular piece of pottery that Jeremiah is watching him give shape to was not compliant with his vision. So he reshaped it then into something else. He changed his vision in order to accommodate and work with the clay under those circumstances and to make it into, listen to what Jeremiah says, shaping it as seemed best to him. Isn't that a beautiful phrase? So think, think carefully about what Jeremiah sees and how he describes it. He sees the clay marred in the potter's hands, not conforming to the potter's vision of what it should become. So then he lumps it back together again and reshapes it into something else as seems best to him. That's a description of the work of God in our lives. And I love that last phrase, as seemed best to him. Those words capture the will and the vision of an artist at work. But there's some flexibility there. He's the one who decides what seems best and begins to shape the clay according to his vision. But if something's not working, he's got the flexibility and the freedom and the sovereignty, the control, to redirect what he's making out of that piece of clay and change it into something else. So when the clay does not take form as he's envisioned it, for any reason, he applies pressure to the clay to reshape it into something else as he sees fit, as he feels is best. And here's the real shocker. Are you ready for this? God can do this with the life of an individual like you or I, and he can also do it with the life of a nation. Think about that. The nation that we live in and that we're so proud of, the United States of America, is nothing more than a piece of clay in the hands of God. We might be really proud of what it means to be Americans, particularly this week as we've celebrated our Independence Day, right? We recognize the beauty of American history and the freedom that we enjoy as Americans. Those are all good things for us to celebrate. But in the end, our nation is nothing more than a piece of clay in God's hands. And if for some reason he sees fit to reshape it into something else, that's up to him. He can do whatever he wants as he sees best. So for Jeremiah then, throughout the readings that we've completed so far, there's an example of the principle that sometimes things can be shaped and used for purposes that are less noble, less beautiful. Sometimes things can be, countries or people can be shaped and used by God even for purposes that we might find hard to understand. So one of the things that we've seen in our reading is that even Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and the nation of Babylon was clay in the hands of God. And he used it as he saw fit to bring discipline or shape to the nation of of Israel and Judah. There's a fascinating parallel here 
that Paul speaks of in Romans chapter 9 using the example of Pharaoh. And perhaps some of you are familiar with this passage. It can be a bit confusing, and we're not going to wade too deeply into all the, all the questions, the big questions about predestination and all that jazz, but just think with me here about the sovereignty of God as it's represented in these words from the Apostle Paul. Romans chapter 9, 14 to 24. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. One of you will say to me, well, then why does God still blame us? Who's able to resist his will? But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath, prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us? whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. You see, Paul's describing here the power and the sovereignty of God over all that he's created. So what does this mean for us? Well, hopefully, we recognize ourselves and our identity as among those who have been touched by the compassion and mercy of God. Which means there's a special purpose at work for us. God is designing us, our lives, and our life together as a community of faith for good things, for beautiful purposes. His mercy and compassion have been released to us so that he can shape us into something beautiful, something that glorifies him. So allow then the pressure that God brings to bear in your life, shaping you with his hands, allow the pressure that he brings to bear in your life to shape you into what he wants you to become. That's the point. Trust that his mercy is at work in your life to shape your life into something beautiful. Trust that his purposes will be accomplished, but also recognize recognize that they're more readily accomplished when you submit your will to his. God can use you in any case, just like he used Pharaoh or Nebuchadnezzar. But we don't want to be like Pharaoh and Nebuchadnezzar, do we? We want to be the people of God who are shaped by God's hand in order to serve God's purposes in beautiful ways. God purposes for his people, those who know him and his mercy. He purposes to make us into something beautiful that will serve his purposes and bring him pleasure. 
So we are indeed a work of art created in Christ to do good works. There's the point of emphasis right there, right? If you have received the mercy and compassion of God, the grace of God, if you're in relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ, and God is shaping your life into something beautiful, he's shaping you so that you can serve him. He's shaping you so that you can do good works that will glorify your creator. And then that brings us to really one final point I want to end with this morning. Just briefly, but it's important to think about this. I want you to recognize here that there is some interaction between the people that God's shaping and the intentions of God, the vision of God, the the purposes of God. How God shapes us, in some measure, is informed by how pliable we are, how yielded we are to him and, and to his purposes. Look with me at Jeremiah 18, 7 to 10, and think carefully about what Jeremiah is describing here. This is all part of the same passage. It's directly related to the analogy that we're thinking about. If at any time, the Lord says to Jeremiah, I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, and destroyed, and if that nation, I warned, repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster that I'd planned. And yet, if at another time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be built up and planted and it does evil in my sight and does not obey me, then I will reconsider the good that I had intended to do for it. Do you see the image here? The pot can be reshaped depending on how pliable it is, how responsive it is, how yielded it is. If you've got a lumpy piece of clay that does not want to conform to the shape that you had in mind for it, what are you going to do? You're going to come up with a different design. You're going to reshape it. You're going to use it for something other than you originally had in mind. That's what Jeremiah is describing here. And he's describing it as having to do with nations, not just individuals. So God may intend for a nation to be uprooted and destroyed But if that nation repents and seeks him, he will not inflict the disaster upon it that he'd originally planned. He'll change course. He'll relent. Or on the flip side, God may intend for a nation like the United States of America to be something great and to do great things on the face of the earth. And if we turn away from him and we refuse to be compliant, if we refuse to be... um, molded by the plans and purposes of God, if we're resistant and rebellious to his purposes, he can change his mind. What he intended for good might turn out to be for destruction. So this is a description of interactivity, responsiveness. God is looking for people and for nations, I might add, that are pliable in his hands responsive to his purposes? That's the question here. The supreme act of human pride and rebellion against God is to turn this reality upside down. It's to not be pliable. It's, in fact, to turn and say, 
there is no God. He didn't shape me. He doesn't control me. He doesn't determine my destiny. Listen to the warning that Isaiah gave a few generations before Jeremiah. And because the people of God did not heed this warning, they were destroyed. According to Jeremiah's prophecy a few generations later. Isaiah 29, 15, and 16. Woe to those who go to great depths to hide their plans from the Lord, who do their work in darkness and think, who sees us? Who will know? You turn things upside down, as if the potter were thought to be like the clay. Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, you didn't make me? Can the pot say to the potter, you know nothing? So the fundamental question is this, right? Are you pliable? Are you pliable in the hands of God? Are you responsive to his purposes, to the pressure that he exerts in different ways to shape your life? How yielded to his will are you? Are you a willing partner with his purposes, allowing his hands to shape your life as he sees fit? Or are you resistant? Let me close this morning with an illustration. It's really a testimony. And it's set to some video using this beautiful analogy that we've talked about this morning. It's the story of a, uh, a pretty cool man of God who's a professional football player but understands that in the grand scheme of things, that's not the most important thing about him. Listen to this story from Benjamin Watson. It's amazing how God has his own purposes and his own timing. And sometimes it's different than what our timing is. I always wanted to play football, clearly, but I always wanted to play wide receiver. I grew a little bigger than a wide receiver, so I ended up playing tight end. But as a tight end, you're an offensive player. You want to score touchdowns. You want to be known for, you know, the, the, the footballs, the passes you catch. And going through college, going through the NFL, I mean, we're talking about 20 years worth of work to be known as one of the great at your position. That's, that's what every player wants. tough for me because as an athlete you want your name in lights you know you want your name to be the one they call on Sunday scoring the winning touchdown you want to read about yourself in the paper and then it's funny how as hard as that was to be in that position my wife kept telling me Benjamin you be faithful in what God has given you God had me in that position at that place in New Orleans at that time it wasn't an accident and you know I'm going to serve him right now even though my football career isn't really going how I want it to go. He has me in this position, maybe for things outside of football. Maybe there's guys that are going to get saved because I'm in this locker room and they never heard the gospel. So I, I went about it for two years doing that. And then the funny thing is, 2014, I write this blog post about Ferguson and about what happened, um, about my anger and my frustration, about seeing these things between police officers and, and men and black men on TV. And, and there was so much going on this, that summer. And I put it out there, and it goes viral. I spent 20 years of my life trying to play football, and I'm known for a tackle on, really, defense, because it was an interception, 
and a Facebook post. Kind of like God's Got Jokes. But that's how he does. He can elevate your name uh, however he wants to do it. Or he can have nobody hear about you however he wants to do it. And you realize that it's not because of anything I did. It's because he wanted to elevate me at this time. Um, he wanted people to know something that I wrote or something that I did at this time. And it's amazing his timing because if it would have happened any other way, my pride might have kicked in and I might have thought it was all about me. All about, all about because I was doing so well on the field is why people know. But I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that it was him. And he just chose to do it at that time. And the whole thing turns into a book. Under Our Skin. Getting real about race, getting free from the fears and frustrations that divide us. The Facebook post grows legs, and next thing I know, a publisher is calling me about wanting to do a book based on the Facebook post. So the book really follows the sequence of the Facebook post, follows my emotions about being angry, about being sad, about being sympathetic, about being introspective, about being um, hopeless and hopeful, and ultimately being encouraged, because the gospel gives all mankind hope when we look at all these that's going on in our country and our world. The gospel is the equalizer that promotes unity. And so that's where our encouragement can really lie. Our job is to be ambassadors for Christ, wherever you are wherever you talk to, we all have a sphere of influence. We never know what God is going to use with our obedience. And if nobody hears about what you do, your job is to still be obedient to what he has for you to do.